If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to Mark chapter 6, where we took a couple of weeks off and we're going to continue our study through the book of Mark this morning. And we're going to hear and study an account that is pretty familiar to us, but I, I hope and pray this morning that as you hear this text, that, that God will do, through His Spirit, will do a work in your life. You know, many times, just when we think we have life all figured out, life kind of throws us a curveball, doesn't it? Even as I was preparing to preach this sermon this week, and I thought about many of you, uh, many of you youth or children and on up through the adults, and just, just thought about times in your life where um, maybe life has taken you on a detour that was really kind of unexpected or, or threw you into a situation that um, you weren't ready for, that caused some turmoil in your life. A couple of weeks ago, um, we were at home, Casey and I, and we were wanting to watch a movie. I think we had had a date night and um, the kids were all in the room with us and we were going to watch a movie together and I looked through the movies and I chose what I thought was going to be a comedy and it was anything but a comedy. (laughs) It was a tragic story of a man who was expecting his first child. And the child was born and then later the wife, uh, she came through the the C-section all right, but later the wife had some complications and she passed away before she could go home with her husband and newborn child. And the story unfolded of this man who was suddenly thrown into being a single parent. About the difficulties. About the the thoughts and the hopes and the expectations that he had had that were just dashed. In one moment. laid out quite uniquely about the trials and the hardships and the doubts. And what was very interesting in this, in this movie was just about the time that it, you thought it was reaching this point of, of difficulty and hardship and this, the resolution that you thought was coming came and this man found a lady who loved his daughter and you thought, oh, here it is, the conclusion, and then... One more curveball and boom, the thing all falls apart. And the man ends up sending his daughter away to do what was best for her, which was being raised by someone else. In one moment, one situation, one rogue wave, and we can feel like that our life Our hopes, our dreams, our expectations have just been pulled out from under us. And in many ways, the disciples are riding these kind of waves as we see in the book of Mark, aren't they? That they're constantly on this this trajectory of, of life going well and they're following this man that can do all these miracles and then the next thing you know, it's like, boom, they're in the midst of tragedy. They're in the midst of despair. And if you know your New Testament, if you know your New Testament, you know that once Jesus leaves and then sends the Spirit, that life for the apostles, those waves don't flatten out, do they? 
in fact, they intensify. And we see these men, we see these men carry on a mission and carry on the work of proclaiming the gospel in the midst of very difficult times. And what I want you to see this morning is that in our account this morning, what Jesus is trying to do is He's trying to prepare these disciples in the midst of this difficult time for the ministry that was going to be laid out before them, and they weren't ready. They didn't see it. The ministry that they would have would be difficult beyond their wildest belief. The ministry that He had for them would would be beyond what they had in their natural strength. You see, Christians are not immune to struggle. And any preacher or author that you hear that says, if you have enough faith, you won't struggle, you need to turn it off and turn your head and not listen because that is not reality. That's not the Bible. The Christian life is not a a, a faith of no struggle and no hardships and no difficulties. In fact, many times it is just the opposite. So, as we engage with this passage, as we engage with this passage, Jesus is is wanting you to hear this morning some deep truths that can change everything. But if, if we walk away from this, and our only aim and our only goal in life are for the waves to cease, For the sea to get calm, you've missed it. You've missed it. The conclusion of that tragedy that I I was watching was this this dad, when he was alone without his daughter, learned some things about himself and it reinvigorated him to go and to get his daughter and to live out the rest, I think, the rest of his days with her with, with a change of focus. It, it, it rattled him to a point to where he got the right focus all of a sudden. In this passage this morning, these disciples in the midst of this hard time, it has the ability to rattle our focus. And I'm hoping and praying that that's what it will do in your life. And so the first thing that I want us to do as we dig in is I want you just for a moment, just for a moment, we need to do just a brief review because I want you to put yourself there. Put yourself where these disciples are. Remember how this whole thing got started. This is not one of those things that we read through scriptures and all of a sudden, boom, they're out on the sea and boom, uh, the waves are there. There there is a build up to this that's very important to understanding this text. And so jump with me back in chapter six to verse seven through 13. Jesus summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. So in other words, if you were here as we when we preached, when I preached this message that we said this was like a practicum. That Jesus was in this, in this process of training these disciples. And the disciples went out. And they went into these towns and they were proclaiming the gospel. And they were performing miracles. And they were casting out demons. And then in verse 30 and 31, we have the disciples coming back to Jesus after this experience. And notice what happens in verse 30 and 31. 
the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And notice the compassion of Jesus here. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there are many people coming and going and they did not have time to eat. And so they got into a boat and they went to a secluded place. And if you remember, again, a couple weeks after the, the previous sermon, when we preached this passage, one of the comments that I made is that I felt the disciples were probably thinking, man, this is a time for rest and relaxation. That their mentor, Jesus, was sending them away so that they could just rest and, and debrief. And, and do you remember what happened? This is when the crowds ran on the seashore and beat Jesus and the disciples to where they were going. And we have these multitudes, these thousands and thousands, 20 plus thousand people that were there waiting for them. And this is where we got the, the story, the account of the feeding of the really 20,000 plus people. So there was no rest. There was this great miracle. And this is the background. This is the backdrop that these disciples are in. And so here, once again, as we pick this up, what we see, what we see is that in this context, we have Jesus with these disciples right after the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus is once more sending them away. And John gives us these details. In Mark, it says that he's dismissing the crowd. John gave us this extra detail that the crowd was trying to take Jesus by force and to make him king. And so I just, as I picture this scenario, I picture pandemonium. People that are intense. They're excited. It's a little bit crazy. It's late at night. <laughs> the disciples are tired. They're amazed. They're probably confused. And then we get, this is where we pick up our text. And it says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And I'm sure what the disciples were thinking once again is, finally, <laughs> finally, we're going to get some rest. Finally, we're going to maybe get some sleep. Their bellies were full. Remember in the feeding of the 5,000, it said that they didn't just get an appetizer. They got their bellies full. But that's not what happened, is it? Notice the curveball in verse 47 and verse 48. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them at about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea and intended to pass them by. When it says it was the fourth watch of night, this meant it was between three and six in the morning. These men were tired. Notice it says, do you notice where it said they were? In the middle of the sea. The journey on which they were going, they would have hugged the coastline and it was an easy four to eight mile row but the seas were so intense that it pushed them out to the middle of the sea. So it's three to six o'clock in the morning. They're tired. They're worn out. And they're off course. And they are struggling mightily. 
And I want to ask you the question, what do you think was going on in the boat? This is all speculation. Twelve men in a boat who are tired, cranky, blown off course. I bet there were some, maybe Peter, who were like, row harder, you idiots. What are you doing? Maybe John was crying. (laughs) I just don't want to row anymore, you know. There may be some that had just thrown their oars in the water, and who knows? But this was not a scene in which it was like this fairy tale. These men were in trouble. And they had been thrown this curveball, and they were off course. And it doesn't escape me. That maybe some of you can relate to this right now. That there might be some of you who are even in here this morning and you feel like that you are in the midst of life having thrown you a curveball. And what is supposed to be is not. And maybe you are tired. Maybe you are worn out. Maybe you are weary. Maybe you this morning just really want a rescue. What I want you to see this morning is Jesus does rescue these men, but there's more than that. Jesus is rescuing these men from more than just the waves and the current. And and that's what I'm wanting us to see, because that is what is most important, because in the middle of this storm and in the middle of this chaos, Jesus is still preparing these men for ministry. And you say, Lewis, how do you know that? Because this could have been much different. Notice in verse 45, don't miss this. It says immediately Jesus did what? What does it say? He made his disciples get in the boat. Jesus could have done this. Jesus could have easily said, hey guys, wait on me. You're going to need me. Jesus could have said, hey, listen, this is a real good opportunity for you to learn how to pray. Come on the mountain with me. I'm going to teach you how to pray. Jesus could have stood on the shore when he saw the winds and and everything and said, winds cease and the wind would have died down. What I want you to see is that Jesus intentionally sent these men into this storm because he had a purpose. And this purpose was major and it was necessary. The struggle was necessary. And I think about this in our own life. Isn't it human nature that that a lot of times we don't learn things in the time of life when everything is going just fine and dandy, that most of the time when the Lord is able to get our attention, it is in the times of life when everything just seems to be going in different directions and in ways in which we never anticipate? I often am amazed at how texts in the Bible are preached wrongly. You see... When you truly understand this text, you realize that this text is not 
hey, if you have enough faith, Jesus will calm the waves of your life. That is not, that is not the point of this text. Isn't it interesting, most of the time when I hear this text preached, it's preached out of Matthew. And one of the reasons it's preached out of Matthew is because you have Peter stepping out of the boat and, and Mark leaves this out. And he, do you ever wonder, why would Mark leave that out? In fact, what we know is that Mark got his information to write the gospel from Peter. Why would, why would Peter leave this out? And I think the reason... Is because under inspiration from Peter to Mark, what the Holy Spirit and what these men want us to see is that this is not about Peter. It's about someone much greater than Peter. And if our focus gets off on Peter and taking steps towards Jesus, then we miss the point of what this text is trying to teach us. Now, I, I want to be clear here. I want to be clear here, and don't miss this. Jesus does come and rescue these men. And what we're going to see, you look at the rebuke at the end of the text, that their hearts were hardened. It's not contingent upon their faith that He came out and rescued them. In fact, He rebukes them. So I, what I do want you to see is Jesus does care. He does rescue them. If we're in the midst of hard times, we do need to pray for rescue. That is godly and it is good. But it's not the main point of this text. And I want us to see this because I don't want us to miss it. Now, one of the things that fascinates me is that there are some really strange things about this text, aren't there? If, if you read this and you really begin to, to, to pay attention to the words, there are some strange things here. But before you get off into thinking what I mean by strange, I want to be very clear of what I think is not strange. The first thing that I do not think is strange about this text is that the disciples are in the middle of the lake and they're in trouble. That is not strange. That is a normal occurrence with these men. Now, here's where you may get sideways with me a little bit. I also do not think it's strange that Jesus is walking on water. The first reason, the most obvious, is this. Who made the water? Stands to reason. Reason that he could walk on the water. He had just, he had just taken some small fish and a couple of crackers and fed 20 plus thousand people. It means... In front of them, he was creating matter to feed people. It is not strange that somebody can do that, could also walk on water. And also, as we've been going through this book of Mark, the other thing that we have seen over and over and over is that Mark has been screaming at us that Jesus has authority. He has authority over demons. He's casting out demons. He has authority over sickness. He is healing people. He has authority over death. He was raising people from the grave. And we see over and over that he had authority over nature as well. And so it's not strange or unusual that Jesus would be out walking on the water. It may be unexpected. But it shouldn't be strange. But what I want you to see that is strange in this text, look at verse 48. 
So Jesus is out while he's seeing them straining at the oars, and the wind was against them. About the fourth watch at night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Notice this phrase. Is this phrase not strange to you? He intended to pass them by. What in the world is going on here? That's strange. Jesus the rescuer is going to just walk right on by. And there's all kinds of crazy theories. Did he not see him? Maybe were the waves too big? He didn't see him there? Or... And I think another thing that is strange, that's not the only strange, unusual thing in this text. Look at, the, look at the conclusion of this. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. How strange is this? They were astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Do you find that strange? That here he gets into the boat to rescue them, and he starts talking about the loaves, the bread. That's what they missed something there. And I think... I think that the key to understanding this text is to see what in the world is going on in these two strange things. And it's here in this struggle that we find these glorious truths that not only if the disciples would have heard it and would have seen it, would have immediately equipped them deeper than what they were, but their hearts were hardened, it tells us. And I think for us as well, that if we will see the truths of this text, it will do something in us as we go, as we sing, and as we are the salt and the light. So I, wanna, I want us to see something here. Now remember, is this the first time that we have the disciples in a boat? You remember the last time in Mark 4, Mark, Jesus is in the boat, but he's what? Asleep. They wake him up. He calms the storm. And do you remember what, you remember what the rhetorical question was? Who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? And, and the point of that encounter, the point of that account, and Mark does this all throughout his gospel, is that in these incidences, he is declaring something about Jesus and it's demanding a response. And what we have in that is that this question of who is this man? And I think that's the question that the disciples were meant to see. That's one of the things that the disciples were meant to see as they see Jesus walking on the water. That they should have been asking themselves, who is this man that even walks on water? And Mark is doing what Mark does all throughout this gospel. And it's, I think it's the key to understanding some of this strange phrasing is Mark subtly gives us these allusions to the Old Testament that just brings this text to life. And as we look at this text, as we look at this wording, it reminds us of the ninth chapter of Job. And in the ninth chapter of Job, we find a man that is in the midst of turmoil, who is in the midst of struggle. 
And he is going to his friends and he, his friends are advising him on how he can be comforted and get out of this struggle and get out of this turmoil. And as we look at Job chapter 9, I want to read verses 5 through 10 and I want you to hear, hear the illusion here. Job is talking about the power of God. He says, it is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. When he overturns them in anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and pillars tremble, who commands the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the sea. Who makes the bear Orion and Pleiades in the chambers of the south. So we have Job here. He's he's proclaiming the greatness of God as one who can walk out on the sea. And you may say, Lewis, that's a stretch. Keep reading. Keep reading. In verse 10, who does great things, unfathomable and wondrous works without number. Were he to pass me by me, I would not see him. Were he to move past me, I would not perceive him. It's the same word in the Septuagint as it is here when it talks about passing by. And the point, what Job is saying, is God is mighty, He is big, I believe all these things about Him, but I also believe that in this moment He is distant from me because we are struggling and He doesn't care. Mark, over and over again, uses the Old Testament to tell us who this Jesus is. If you remember, the Gospel of Mark starts in an odd place. The Gospel of Mark starts with the proclamation of of John the Baptist. And if you remember in that, we get a quote out of Isaiah. And when we studied that passage, we saw that that quote from Isaiah, when it was talking about preparing the way of the Lord... It wasn't talking about the foretold Messiah. It was talking about the coming of Yahweh Himself. That John, the forerunner, was proclaiming Yahweh Himself. And we saw in the very beginning of this book that Mark was setting the tone that when we see Jesus, we are seeing God in the flesh. This is no normal man. And then it continued, we, we saw at the baptism of Jesus, when it said that the heavens were rent and torn open, that that was this odd word that was also used in Isaiah chapter 64, when they are pleading, oh God, would you rend the heavens and come down? And, John, and Mark uses this wording, and we are to take from that that this is the fulfillment that God has come with His people. And just a couple of weeks ago, when we were studying about Uh, Jesus being in the boat and seeing all the people, he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. And that was a direct allusion to Israel. And that the great shepherd of the people of Israel was God. It was another proclamation that this man, Jesus, is divine. He is God himself. Over and over in this gospel, we are given this imagery that where we and the disciples are to look at Jesus and we are to see him as the all powerful, almighty, omniscient God. But. But. This is not like the proclamation of Job, is it? 
because he didn't pass them by. He got in the boat. Don't miss this. This man got in the boat. The Almighty co-creator, Savior of the universe, God in flesh, God with us, got in the boat. If you're still not convinced, look at the language in verse 49 and 50. Now, if you've been following along in our Bible reading with us, I, I want you to, there, there, there's a word that I want you to hear. But, so when they saw him walking out on the sea, they supposed he was ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately noticed what he spoke. And he spoke to them and said, take courage. Heard that before? As we've been reading Joshua, have you heard that? Take courage, be strong, be courageous. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and we also see it throughout the New Testament. And any time we are told to, to be strong, to take courage, to be courageous, it's rooted in something. And look what Christ roots this in. Take courage, it is I. Imi ego. Literally translated, take courage, I am. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses was saying, Who shall I tell them sent me? What did God say his name was? I am. When Jesus got into the boat, and told these disciples to take courage, who did He tell them He was? I am. There's a quote that I am stealing from a pastor. And he's right. This story is not about getting the disciples out of the storm. This story is about the fact that God is with them in the boat. And this is the lesson that we need to learn. One of the lessons that we need to learn. And there's more. There's more. Because this still doesn't explain. I think it partially explains, but it still leaves this nagging question in my head. In verse 52... For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows. So when, we, when you're studying this, you should be asking questions. So what was it they were supposed to learn from the loaves? I, I mean, surely one of the things they were supposed to learn from the loaves is that Jesus is God. He's not this divine vending machine, right? That there's something deeper going on here. That this, and, and he has just told them that I am is in the boat with you. But I think there's something deeper here about the lows, about what they're supposed to see that they weren't seeing. And Mark, what he does in his gospel is he unfolds this, this theme a little later. In, verse, in chapter 8, we have another feeding of 4,000. And it, it's there we get this narrative where Jesus is talking with his disciples about bread. And I just want to 
I just want to point something out to you because it gives us a clue of what we're, what the, maybe what the disciples weren't seeing. And in 14 through 21, in chapter 8, it says, He called to the crowd, he called the crowd to him again, and began to teach them. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Starting in verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread. He had just fed the 4,000. They embarked on a journey, and they had, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And isn't it interesting? We have another feeding. They're in the boat. He's talking about Herod. He's talking about the Pharisees. And the disciples begin to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see and understand? Notice the wording. Do you have a hardened heart? This connects us with our passage. And then notice this. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, twelve. So when we, if we... If we have this in mind and jump back to our text, what we see when, when, the, when it says that they didn't remember about the loaves, I think what it is calling us to is that the disciples didn't remember about the leftover baskets. Again, he fed 20 plus thousand people. Is it a coincidence that when they gathered everything that was left over that there were 12 baskets and that there were 12 of them? No. Which means there was a lesson to be learned. There was something that as they looked and stared into these baskets, as they took this bread and they ate it, as they took these fish and began to eat them, there was something more that they were supposed to see. And Jesus is telling them here that they did not see it because their hearts were hard. And what is it that they didn't see? And I think what they didn't see, they didn't see, is that Jesus has the ability to do more than just quench your physical hunger. In John, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, John goes into this discourse where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and if you eat of me, you will never hunger again. And I think Jesus' rebuke here is that Jesus is saying, you're not understanding who I am. A question I would have for you. What is uniquely Christian? The, the, the movie that I watched, that I referenced, there was nothing Christian about the movie. Maybe the funeral was in a church, I don't remember. There was nothing uniquely Christian about that movie. And here was a man that just wanted to be rescued out of his situation. And I want to ask you, what is uniquely Christian about the movie? Or about the disciples in the boat. A non-Christian is going to want to be rescued from the storm, right? There's nothing uniquely Christian about that. Just like this man who had these storms going on in his life in this, in, in this movie. What makes the Christian life different? What makes this encounter more than just a rescue at sea? 
And that's this. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that for his disciples in ministry and for you and for me. That in order for us to endure in the Christian life. That we have to be looking for our satisfaction. From more than just a rescue from our circumstances. That we need to see Jesus as our all-satisfying treasure. That we need to see Him for, what he, for who He claims to be, the bread of life. That we need to so hunger for Him, to so thirst for Him, that even in the midst of the storms and the curveballs that life throws us, as we're wanting to be rescued out of them, that there's this deeper thread running underneath that, and that is, Lord, how can I be closer to You in the midst of this storm? For You are my satisfaction. And even if this storm takes me out, I want to glorify You with my life. What Jesus is offering is more satisfying than a rescue at sea. It is something that you can build your life upon. And I want to ask you this morning, how would your outlook this morning change if in the middle of the struggle and the storm that you truly believed that this Jesus was with you in the boat? How would your outlook change this morning if you looked at the storms as as, as more than just a, a random act, but you looked at it as that God is doing something significant in your life. How would your outlook this morning change if in the middle of the turmoil, what you valued most was your union and communion with the Savior? How our hearts would be revived if our passion, if our passion became knowing Him more deeply. How our hearts would be revived and how courageous would we be and how much strength would be found if we didn't look inward into ourselves for that strength, but we looked to our Savior. So my prayer this morning is that your heart wouldn't be hardened, but that you may see your Savior for who He is and that you would be full as you leave here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are the glorious Christ. Greater than all delights. God, help us to be a people that as we go through conflict and turmoil in our lives, that we look and we recognize and we take courage in the fact that you're in the boat with us. God, I pray that we're a people that pray 
And that we pray with one another that the storms of life would diminish and that you would rescue us because we know that you're a God that does that. But God, above all of that, God, I pray that as we go through life, that our circumstances would draw us into the lesson of the loaves. That take us to the eternal over the temporal. That we would be a people who are satisfied in you. Because there is no greater satisfaction. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.